Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. I am Dr. Tanya Wright, the Clerkship Director at the Penn State College of Medicine, Hershey Medical Center. Today we'll be discussing the APCO educational topic number 34, Pregnancy Termination. If you'd like to follow along, you can do so by going to www.apco.org backslash students. The case is described there as well as the questions that we'll be working through. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Horvath. Dr. Horvath, tell us a little bit about what you do. Thanks so much for having me. So I am a family planning fellowship trained OBGYN, and that means that I specialize in uh, contraception, abortion care, and miscarriage management. Great. So in other words, you're an expert in the topic that we're going to be covering today. So we're so privileged to have you here. Are you ready to get started? Absolutely. All right. So this is a case of a 14-year-old G1P0 who is presenting to a private clinic requesting a termination of pregnancy. Her LMP, or last menstrual period, began nine weeks prior to arrival. She has been experiencing intermittent nausea and vomiting. She is sexually active with her 21-year-old partner and reports that she's having consensual sex with him. She has been using condoms for contraception. She has no history of sexually transmitted infections. She has a mild asthma for which she uses an inhaler as needed. She denies alcohol, drug, or tobacco use and lives with her mother and 17-year-old brother. Her physical exam is unremarkable. Her uterine size is approximately eight weeks, and the ultrasound confirms an intrauterine pregnancy, or IUP, at eight weeks with fetal heart motion present. Dr. Horvath, what is options counseling, and how would you counsel this patient about those options? Options counseling is the ability to talk to a patient about all of the ways that her pregnancy might progress. So that includes abortion care for patients who don't want to continue the pregnancy or continuing the pregnancy with the option of then pursuing either adoption or parenting. And the purpose of options counseling is really to help the woman to understand all of the um, different options that are available to her. And this should be done in a shared decision-making capacity where you're really listening to what it is that the patient wants, understanding that she is the expert in herself, her body, her social situation, and then that you are the medical expert. And so it's really an exchange of ideas between equals um, who are just bringing two very different levels of expertise to the table. Awesome. So if this patient was a victim of sexual abuse, should this case be reported to authorities? That's a really great question. And states have different definitions of what is considered statutory rape or sexual coercion. So in this case where the patient is 14 years old and her partner is 21, that's a seven-year difference. And in the state of Pennsylvania, that is actually considered statutory rape. And so that's reportable in this particular state. Now, depending on where each of you goes out and becomes a resident and or practices, that, um, those definitions can change. And so it's really important to know what the local reporting requirements are. Um, so can this patient consent for termination herself if she chose to go that route, or does she have to have parental consent since she's only 14 years old and is a minor? That again varies by state. So Pennsylvania is a state that has a minor consent law, in which case this patient would have to have a parent or guardian, legal guardian, who can sign that consent form along with her. Now, there is a process called the judicial bypass process, which is in um, 
which is instated both here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and in all other states that have minor consent, which allows that minor to bypass having to have a parent uh, sign the consent form. However, it requires that she go before a judge and that can be a lengthy process that actually pushes her further back into her pregnancy before she would be able to obtain abortion care. Got it. So at about eight weeks, if she were to decide to have an abortion, what types of abortion is she eligible for? So the old FDA approval for medication abortion only went to seven weeks. And sometimes when you're reading old textbooks, it will still reference this 49 days or seven week period. That is antiquated. The FDA actually updated their approval process in 2016 to match medical evidence. And we now have medic medical abortion or medication abortion, which is available up to 10 weeks and zero days. At any gestational age, you also have the option of doing a procedure instead. The procedure is a manual vacuum aspiration, often called a dilation and curatage, or DNC, although the current method is really more consistent with manual vacuum aspiration or electric vacuum aspiration. This particular procedure, which is fairly non-invasive and very quick, takes about five minutes, is available throughout the first trimester and in some locations up to about 16 weeks. Beyond 16 weeks, you then start to look at needing to have a dilation and evacuation, which is a little bit more involved. Dr. Horvath, could you then walk us through just kind of some of the technical points of performing a surgical abortion at the early gestational age, such as eight weeks? Absolutely. So at eight weeks gestation, um, the entirety of the procedure is performed through a speculum. Again, it can be performed in an office-based setting where the patient is fully awake. It can be performed in an office-based setting with the patient under sedation, or it can be performed in the OR. And those sorts of considerations have to do with the rest of the patient's medical history, their social history, their insurance, and how much they want to pay for the care. Um, and then, uh, again, any local restrictions based on the hospital or medical center where you're practicing. In general, what the procedure actually involves is placing a speculum cleansing the cervix, and then using um, serial dilators to open up the natural orifice of the cervix. So there's no actual quote-unquote surgery involved. It's just a procedure in which the uh, cervix is dilated, and then a cannula is placed. And that cannula sort of looks like a drinking straw with an opening at one side at the very end of it. That is um, sterile. It goes into the uterus, and it's used to bring out the contents of the uterus. Awesome. So what about medical abortion? Medication abortion is a combination of two separate medications, mifepristone, which was originally approved in 2000 by the FDA, but has actually been around in Europe for much, much longer, and then, um, and then mesoprostol, which is a prostaglandin analog. The mifepristone is swallowed just like any other pill approximately 24 hours prior to the use of the mesoprostol if you're using the mesoprostol buccally. And that means placed between the cheeks and the gums. 
We have great evidence that you can actually place the mesoprostol sooner, as little as 15 minutes after taking the mifepristone, as long as you're using it vaginally, in which case you insert the same exact pills up inside the uh, vagina to be um, absorbed through the mucosa. What type of follow-up is needed for a patient that undergoes a medical abortion? So again, this has evolved as the evidence has evolved. If you look back at the um, early, early FDA approval in 2000, there were actually three separate visits that were required. Now, the follow-up is a little bit more at the discretion of the clinician. So um, often, follow-up involves coming back and having another ultrasound one to two weeks after you've taken the medications to be sure that the uterus is truly empty. There's an alternative in which you can actually follow the beta HCG or pregnancy hormone in the blood. So you can do a blood test the day that you give the medications and then again a week to two weeks later and you can compare those two numbers. If we have enough of a drop then you know that that patient has completed and they don't actually have to be physically seen back. They can have that done if they're traveling, they can have that done locally to wherever it is that they live and then there can be a telephone follow-up. So the follow-up is really based on what your own clinical protocols are and what you're comfortable with but there's evidence for either. Got it. Can you talk me through a little bit of some of the potential complications that can happen with abortion? I recognize that these complications may be different if you're treated medically or surgically. Um, could, could you discuss that a little bit? Absolutely. So the most important thing to remember is that abortion care in the United States is very, very safe. Complications occur less than 1% of the time with a procedure. Those complications include infection, bleeding or hemorrhage, sometimes requiring transfusion, or need for a repeat procedure. The um, procedure itself has similar complications to having an IUD placed, so perforation, damage to the uterus itself, the cervix, or the surrounding structures, most commonly the bladder, the bowel, the nerves, or the blood vessels. And while it's really important to make sure that the patient is counseled that all of these things are possible, it's really also very important to re remind them that the all comers, that happens less than 1% of the time. And actually, abortion care is about 14 times safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. Mm. Good point, Dr. Horvath. Okay, so this patient undergoes a safe um, surgical abortion, does well, has no complications. And now at her age, she's obviously not interested in having a pregnancy right now. How would you counsel her about contraception? That's great, and this is where we return again to that shared decision-making model. Some patients are really highly motivated to have contraception discussion and placement all at the same exact time as having their abortion care. Others feel like they need to do one thing at a time, in which case you should really invite them back to have a discussion on another day. And yet others will decide that while an abortion is the right thing for them in this moment, they don't actually want contraception. So again, really important to take the cues from the patient. The other thing that's really important to understand is that all methods are safe immediately following both surgical abortion and medication abortion. So you can actually place an explanon the same day that you initiate your medication abortion and it won't 
interfere with um, either process. You can also start pills the same day. You can start a depot injection. There is some evidence that the depot may be modestly, may make the medication abortion modestly less effective, but we're talking about a difference between 1.5% failure versus 3% failure. It's really a small difference. Mm, good to know. So you can really initiate anything on the same day. And if you're in a place that will allow you to pay for things with insurance, you can place an IUD at the exact same time that you complete the abortion procedure. Um, and so it really prevents the patient from having to have another uh, speculum exam, another visit to the office. Got it. Dr. Horvath, before we conclude this case, are there any other considerations for counseling in this patient? Yeah, so there are a few things. First is um, STI testing and prevention. Anyone who has become pregnant has been exposed to whatever else the partner has going on as well. So it's really important to remember that under the age of 25, just being that age is a risk factor for having gonorrhea, chlamydia, and we also have increasing syphilis rates in this country and in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So really important to offer these patients testing for all the full panel of STIs. In addition to that, this patient um, is a minor who has been having regular sex with someone who is more than seven years older than her. And that is reportable in this particular state. So it's gonna be really important to let the patient know that you are a mandatory reporter and that you are going to have to let the authorities know you can't surprise patients with that. It's very important that you let them know that that is your obligation under the law. Got it. And then finally, Dr. Horvath, how can this patient pay for an abortion? Again, this is gonna be state dependent and um, insurance provider dependent. So um, all different states have different Medicaid policy. If this patient has Medicaid, in the state of Pennsylvania, it would only be paid for in the cases of maternal life threat, rape, or um, incest. And because this patient is technically uh, the victim of statutory rape, you should be able to fill out the paperwork and have it covered if she has Medicaid. This depends on which state you're in, whether or not they follow those Hyde Amendment rules, which again are the three exceptions, like maternal life threat, rape, or incest. If she has private insurance, it just depends and you have to look into what her policy covers. Now, if she is not covered at all for this cost, then it's often an out-of-pocket cost. Depending on where you get your care, there can be a sliding scale, which can often help with the cost of the abortion, which is generally in the first trimester around $500 or she can um, apply to different medical funds. There are medical funds to help people pay for their abortion care, both at the national level and then at different state and local levels as well. Dr. Horvath, that was amazingly comprehensive and we really appreciate you being here with us and we look forward to doing this again. Thank you so much. Thank you.